And I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to the fans here to get this right and to reward them because, you know, I'll forget most plays of the Super Bowl that I was with with the Eagles. I'll forget just about every play in that game. But what I won't forget is that parade afterwards. It's indelible in my mind. I'll never forget it. And in my mind, there's only one place that would outdo that parade in Philadelphia. And um, and we're here right now. So I, I'm really excited about getting to work. And um, it's an honor to have uh, Dino look over this uh, proceeding too. So thanks, guys. Welcome into OBR Film Breakdown. Your host, Jake Burns. It's your Thursday, January 19th episode, and we have a fantastic one today for you. You just heard Jim Schwartz, that little soundbite, before we came into today, which I thought was a really cool soundbite. And really what's happened with Jim Schwartz is they introduced him as defensive coordinator today as this full circle effect for Jim was uh, you know, on display from the second he walked into the media room in Cleveland, uh, sorry, in Berea, uh, where he did his introductory press conference today. You know, he started with his recognizing the photo of the Browns Media Center, uh, you know, dedication, which is to Dino Lucarelli, who was obviously a longtime Browns fixture. He was, I mean, he did everything. He was three decades with the Browns before he retired in 2009. He was, you know, player relations, community relations, public relations, alumni relations, everything behind the scenes. He built so many relationships, and Schwartz obviously spent a lot of time with him in his original tenure in Cleveland when he arrived in Bill Belichick's staff. And that's what the first portion of the press conference was about, uh, talking about a lot of his time, some funny stories about a turkey sandwich and Bill Belichick and you know how he arrived and what he was doing, the money he was making. It was really a trip down nostalgia lane for a lot of the, the beat writers who were in that room today who were around during that time. The Browns of one of the unique situations of media, good or bad, uh, that the media has been, uh, th- those close to the team working for organizations close to the team have been there a long time, and they remember those pre-move Browns uh, teams and, and, and all of the staffers and Belichick's era here in Cleveland and all that. So that was a fun little trip down memory lane for all of them. But he really got into also talking about a lot of his theories, right? Uh, you know, noted a couple things that he said that this was Kevin Stefanski's staff and we will sort out what Kevin wants to do with the staff, but obviously coach speak because he's going to have a large play in who the Browns end up bringing in as his secondary D-line linebackers, all those position coaches. Uh, he will have a, a big a big role in that. And we learned today that Jeff Howard's interviewing for the linebacker, which who's currently the Browns' defensive backs coach, linebackers coach, interviewing out in L.A. for the Chargers' linebackers coach role. So there's going to be a lot of moving parts here. I actually put up a story today on the OBR linking as many people from Schwartz era of Philly, some in uh, Tennessee, both the first time and second time, and then Detroit as well. Just all the names that are connected to him that you could watch out for, for names that could potentially be on that coaching staff. But not not much today that we learned in Schwartz introductory presser, but we did get a lot of the personal story stuff, which is great. His first time with the Browns, what draws him back, some of his theories on body types at linebacker, so on and so forth, what attracted him here he preached the pass rush stuff and how excited he is to coach Miles Garrett, obviously. And then obviously also the big thing he hit on was 
player accountability, holding the leaders in the locker room, especially on defense, as the most uh, you know, accountable types. It starts with them, it ends with them, holding them to the highest level of accountability. People love to hear that. And then some other little news and notes. You should go back, watch it. It's worth your time. I'm not going to recap every answer. But again, trip down memory lane, looking forward for Schwartz. Should be an interesting situation that he gets into. And I'm excited to see how he fills out his staff and then obviously fills out the players it takes to make his staff work. So we're going to shift. We have a really exciting interview today. One of the best covering X's and O's, I think, across the NFL from a team a team hired, team in-house operating standpoint, and that's Fran Duffy, who's at Eagles X's and O's, who's covering the Eagles for the his podcast, the Eagle Eye in the Sky Journey to the Draft Pod. He came on this podcast back during the Browns Eagles joint practices. Got a chance to catch up with him with what he was seeing in the preseason last year. Anytime I can talk to Fran, I try to do so. Again, make sure you check out his work. He's been with the Eagles since 2011, so he has the full scope of who Schwartz is. That's what I've been hunting to try to find. He gives us such great perspective in this. We'll get to the interview right after this break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fran, man, we're excited to have you. Thanks for taking some time with us today. Yeah, Jake, absolutely. appreciate you having me. Yeah, let's dig in real quick, man. I know you, you were around Philly, obviously doing the fantastic X and O work uh, well before Schwartz got there, obviously his entire tenure. So he gets hired 16. What defense was he taking over? I mean, I think it was trying to to fix everything, but like, just talk to me about his early years in, in Philly and what you uh, what you saw when you first got there. Well, it's it's really interesting because um, you know if, you, if we go back to the latter stages of the Andy Reid era here in Philadelphia, which I, I got here in, in the summer of 2011, so the final two seasons, 2011, 2012 under Andy Reid, the Eagles were running uh, a version of a wide nine front with Jim Washburn, who was the defensive line coach those two years. And Jim Washburn worked with Jim Schwartz uh, in Tennessee. The two really were credited with kind of formulating that ideology from a front standpoint with the two wide defensive ends and what that can do from a run game standpoint and a pass rush standpoint, especially in stopping a lot of the wide zone stretch stuff that the Colts were running with Edron James in the AFC South. And so that was really kind of the genesis. And from what I understand anyway, the origin of stopping that kind of run scheme was, hey, let's get the the defensive ends out wide, let them be the force players and trying to force everything back in, force that cutback from Edron James and that rushing attack. And everything kind of took off 
from there, and it really morphed into a, a really quality pass rush front. Now, obviously in Tennessee, uh, Jim Schwartz goes on. He gets named the head coach of the Detroit Lions. Jim Washburn moves on. Uh, he ends up here in Philadelphia as the defensive line coach. And uh, that system didn't work out great uh, because there were a lot of different ideologies mixed in with that, with the front. And uh, things did not go well in the latter stages of the Andy Reid era on the defensive side of the football. And so um, you fast forward to the next regime. Chip Kelly comes in as the head coach. He brings in Bill Davis as his defensive coordinator. And now everything gets turned on its head from a defensive standpoint. Everything goes from 4-3, one gap wide nine to three, four, two gap, uh, and everybody's doing different things. So Fletcher Cox, he's making a transition to a two gap defensive end. Uh, you know, you bring in guys like Benny Logan to be the nose tackle. <clears throat> a bunch of guys uh, had to transition to new roles. Brandon Graham, he's now going to be instead of a defensive end, he's going to play more in reverse. And there were times where you weren't sure what Brandon Graham's future would look like here in Philadelphia. They brought in guys like Connor Barwin, who was outstanding as a stand up rusher, and uh, just kind of working through that transition, which you're going to see uh, over the course of any any kind of uh, regime change, right? So uh, that only lasted for three years here in Philadelphia from 2013 to 2015. So what you then saw was Jim Schwartz came in in the offseason in 2016, and now they're going back to a one-gap 4-3. So while you had guys that had been asked to be two-gap 3-4 personnel over the course of the last three years, you still had the bones in place of guys that were drafted to play in that wide nine front. So Fletcher Cox got drafted in 2012 when Jim Washburn was here. Brandon Graham, he was uh, he was actually coached by Jim Schwartz in 2010 at the Senior Bowl and had a, he was the MVP of the game. He had a couple sacks uh, in the game and credited playing in that system in Mobile uh, for a week for why he went on to become a first round pick. And you go on and on all the guys that were here in Philadelphia that got drafted or brought in to play in this kind of system and. And they flourished. They did an outstanding job. 2016, certainly in the, the, the Super Bowl year of 2017, just being really, really disruptive up front. And that's really where it all starts with that defense. So much is predicated on a really strong four-man rush. And certainly Cleveland has a, the starting point there with Miles Garrett, one of the most gifted pass rushers in football. Yeah, we'll, we'll dig into that here in just a moment. But but I kind of want to trace, and we'll, you know, we, we have to talk secondary too, but you know, the arrival of Schwartz taking over that defense, leading it to where it went right away. I think you read a lot of quotes. I mean, I read a lot of quotes from Timmy Jernigan, from, from, from you know, uh, Malcolm Jenkins. Like, these guys who were talking about him as a man. I think what the Browns defense, like, I think the Browns have done a nice job of taking on who Kevin Stefanski is on the offensive side. But the defense, just my opinion, Fran, I've kind of been vocal on my pod that you need I think you can you can really lose a bit of the edge without passion, without uh, guys who are being held accountable. It's just such a competitive side of the football. Talk a little bit about your experiences with Schwartz, how he is as a person. I know Malcolm Jenkins talked about players getting a say in what they're doing and the accountability that triggered from that. You know that they're not just pawns in a in a video game that a guy's using, but they're actually having a say and. I think what I've read, and you you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, having spent infinite more time around him, is that he does hold players accountable. He gives them a say, and it kind of all intertwines together. And there's very much a leadership aspect to him when he runs a defense. Yeah, I think in today's league, it would be foolish to not give players agency and allow not allow them to have any kind of say in terms of what they're bringing to the table on Sundays, right? So uh, I think certainly you're going to see that with Jim Schwartz and, and with most coaches in today's game. And I, I think also... 
look, the, the proof is in the pudding with what Jim Schwartz has done, especially if you're a defensive lineman. Uh, you have to love the idea of going and playing in this kind of a system. And it's not just uh, with what Schwartz has done, but you look at what like Chris Kasurik, who comes from that scheme uh, and from that system, what he's done in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, that's like a, an easy place. If you're a free agent defensive lineman, hey, you know what? I'd love to go to San Francisco, come off the bench and rack up sack production playing in that system because of what they do to put you in position to succeed uh, and ask you to pin your ears back and go. Uh, and that's really the big thing is those guys up front, they have got the ability. And sometimes it's going to be straight four-man rush uh, with no, no, no frills, right? Now, there's not going to be a lot of glitter so, uh, situated on there. It's not going to be a lot of pretty stunts and things like that. That'll get worked in. But it's really about having the guys up front, the coming waves. Rotation was always big here in Philadelphia. That's an organizational philosophy, not even just a, a Jim Schwartz thing. But um, you know, having those guys up front that can go and win. Uh, and again, the, the system kind of speaks for itself. And it's years uh, of time, right? I mean, Albert Hainsworth getting paid what he got paid on the free agent market with what he did in uh, in Detroit or in, uh, in Tennessee. You get Ndamukong Sue or in his early days in Detroit, what Fletcher Cox did here in Philadelphia under Jim Schwartz, right? So uh, it goes on and on and on. Jeffrey Simmons, what he's done in Tennessee since Schwartz got there uh, in that role that he had with that defense. And so I think ultimately you're looking for the, if you're a player, you're looking for a coach that is going to give you the tools to succeed. And I don't think there's any question, that, especially if you are a defensive front player, uh, that Jim Schwartz is going to give you that. Yeah, you talk about depth. The Browns, you talk, I mean, Miles obviously is is who he is. He's well-known. But but the Browns struggled, and I'm sure you saw it when you watched joint practices to an extent. Can't really get them to the ground and all that stuff. But the depth of the Browns' defensive line is a concern. Is it? Do you think, let me put it this way, kind of frankly, you know, you talked about Albert Hainsworth. He had Ndamukong Sue in Detroit. He had Jeffrey Simmons and obviously Fletcher Cox in Philly and then Jeffrey Simmons. And I don't know, it could be just circumstance. He arrived and these guys were in place and it all worked out kind of thing. Or do you think he really needs a star in that defensive tackle group? Because there's a free agency coming and possibly De'Ron Payne is out there. But there seems like between, and I know you study the draft as well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but between free agency, there seems to be a bunch of quality depth, rotational, raise the basement types to have a good group. And then, and then that second round where the Browns don't have a first, but they have a second, it feels like the right mesh of edge and, and, and defensive line uh, interior there that they could really bolster that group between the two of those. Do you think they should aim for a dominating type or do you think they should really try to gather three, four, five and do the same rotational stuff? I would say probably both. Uh, and I think because here's the reality of it, right, is that if you are going to play, when you go to look at defensive systems around the NFL and what is successful and what is not, uh, you get into, okay, why is this defense really good? And you say, okay, they're really complicated with what they do up front or they're really simple with what they do up front. And then if they're typically, if you're simple up front, then you're going to be a little bit more complicated on the back end schematically. And if you're if you're simple on the back end, then you'll be a little bit more complicated with what you do from a front standpoint. And some of the best defenses over the years, that's typically what you see, right? You might say, okay, you know what? We're going to play a lot of pattern matching zone and really mix things up from a coverage standpoint, but we're going to go simple four-man rush. You think of like uh, what, the, uh, what the Eagles do this year, what the San Francisco 49ers do, uh, have done so far this season. I'm just picking two that are in the, uh, in the NFC right now. But then you go over to uh, the, the inverse 
inverse of that and think back to some of the great Bill Belichick defenses. Hey, you know what? We're going to just play a lot of man coverage. We're going to have some brackets on third down and things like that, but we're going to play a lot of man. But then up front, we're going to have all these different smatterings of personnel groupings and mixing and matching who's lining up where, uh, who's blitzing from where, all the different for- things you're going to do formationally. So if you are going to say, all right, well, Jim Schwartz this is going to be a four-man front, well, if you're going to be simple, then you need your talent to be able to win, right? And so I think that that's the big thing is that when the San Francisco 49ers, you know, when, when Nick Bosa is hurt last year and then Armstead's out and you start losing some of your blue chip players, well, all of a sudden that, that, that pass rush doesn't have the same teeth to do it and that defense doesn't have the same feel to it. Uh, so, And that's not a knock on like the scheme or on the team building process. That's just the kind of the reality of the situation is that if you are going to be simple up front, all right, well, then you need your talent to, to be really, really strong. And that's from a top-end blue-chip quality prospect standpoint, but then also from a depth angle. Because, uh, you know, Lane Johnson, the Eagles right tackle, he actually said it best. He was like, you know, it's, it's such a pain to deal with rotating defensive lines because those guys, you know, they might play – 50 snaps they may play 45 snaps well we don't rotate along the offensive line and so if I'm dealing with guys that are really fresh coming off the bench in the fourth quarter I'm feeling it a little bit those guys are really really fresh and that's just again that's an organizational philosophy uh, here in Philadelphia that I've witnessed over the course of multiple regimes um, and it's worked out to their benefit more often than not Uh, and not everybody kind of feels that way and we'll see if that's something that Jim Schwartz brings to the table in Cleveland. This is a bit of a tricky one. Browns fans saw some metrics, and I think this is pretty understandable if you watch enough film, that Miles Garrett had essentially, and this is, again, tracked through pro football focus, that Miles Garrett essentially had the toughest job of any edge rusher in the NFL this year, dealing with double teams, dealing with the ball, the timing speed of which the ball came out. I think what we're looking at with Schwartz or trying to understand is, is Joe Woods ran a lot of similar wide nine stuff. Is is Schwartz going to bring a different pass rush plan? Like, I guess I'm asking for your experience with him and how he unlocked some of his better guys there. Like, do, do you think he's a malleable? He'll move him around. Do you think he's going to overload a lot? Like, how is he if he has a guy like Miles, which is a little different than some of the interior dominators he's had? I'm just curious from your perspective, if you think he's shown the ability to adapt to an edge rusher to move him. I guess I'm kind of looking at Fran. How does he make like be easier for miles or is it just, Hey, we're going to wide nine and we're going to do this. You're already dominant at it. Go do your thing. Don't limit how he goes about going after the quarterback. I'm just curious because a lot of people are trying to jump to that conclusion. And I don't know if there's any data or evidence or film that backs up how he unlocks with mug fronts, different things like blitz pressure things he does. So curious your perspective on what he does to help those guys up front. Yeah, I guess that'll be one of the things that I'm most interested to see is that, um, you know, to your point, it's not like that we've seen a lot of examples where he had that level of edge rusher. Uh, now that he's had a lot of edge rush production, Jason Babin had outstanding years. Kyle Vandenbosch had outstanding years. Uh, the guys say I didn't hear in Philadelphia had outstanding years uh, working under him. But having that level, you know, one of the uh, most gifted players in the position, regardless of, uh, of scheme, um, to have that kind of Miles Garrett talent, I think will be interesting. My guess is you wouldn't see him necessarily moved around a lot. That was not necessarily the profile. doesn't mean he won't do it, but that was not necessarily what he has done in the past. What I do think you'll see more of is some of the, what you were saying in terms of like the overload fronts and, hey, you know what, we're going to um, you know, put five guys down on the line of scrimmage or we're going to go double mug and really dictate 
one-on-ones from that standpoint. And so that's really where I think you might see that more. Is that we know Miles Garrett is going to beat more, you know, whoever's lined up against him one-on-one. That's a tough assignment for anybody. So what can we do to make sure that he's going to get those one-on-ones? Uh, I think you'll probably see more of that. And there are a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, I think in Tennessee, they've done a really good job of, uh, you know, it's funny, they do a great if you look at like the metric system and you don't actually look at um you know you don't actually look at the film you'll say oh well the, the titans they don't they're not a really aggressive defense they don't really blitz a lot they are outstanding with their pressure looks and their sim pressures where they're going to show pressure they're going to have five six seven guys up on the line of scrimmage and that's going to dictate one-on-ones where now oh man how did jeffrey simmons get left one-on-one how did howard landry get left one-on-one well it's because of how they lined up up front and now that once the ball is snapped, you don't know who's coming and who's not, but you got your one-on-one that you were looking for and that you were hoping to get before the snap. And so my guess is that you'll see more of things like that. Now, Tennessee's an extreme. Will you see it to that extent? I don't know. But I do think that you'll probably see more things along those lines as opposed to say, all right, well, we're going to take Miles Garrett, and instead of 99% of his snaps coming at right defensive end, you're going to see him lined up over the nose or at left defensive end or over the left guard. I don't know that you'd see that as much as more of the formation variation, the front variation uh, for that group. Another angle I'm kind of curious about is his use of linebackers personnel. A couple mm-hmm. things I want to ask for some clarity on. Do you think he prefers looking at like the TJ Edwards types or uh, some of the others he had in his, his tenure there in Philly? Does he prefer a bigger linebacker? Obviously curious because I'm not sure what the Browns do at Mike. If they bring back Anthony Walker or they need to move around, go get some. I know I think uh, TJ actually hits free agency this year. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but yeah. uh, there, there are, some names out there, but but specifically the Browns have an interesting talent in Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa, who's really gifted, but he's not a very big guy. So, you know, I'm curious if there's a different type of linebacker from your experience with him that he looks for. Is there um, a propensity to play three linebackers? I think in my look into true media, I saw that he's really not as high volume and nickel guy as I thought, did a little bit more base early in his tenure and then shifted to actually from what they and I know this can be sort of uh, f- flexible with how they label players but I saw a little bit more dime so kind of speak to me if you can about what type of linebackers you think he has do you think he can adapt to a guy like JOK uh, I know you had David Long there in Tennessee and, and again he's not the DC so I don't know really how much dictatorial you know how much he dictates what they do there but like I just was curious at what you saw at the second level, if he has some preferences and personnel there, and if obviously that translates into a a heavier linebacker preference because he likes to play that one gap and out gap teams and play the one high stuff, or if there's a use of DB stuff, he really likes to get a higher volume six DB packages on the field. Yeah, it's always tough when you look at uh, really um, experienced coaches because of how the game has changed even in the last like three, four, five years, much less, you know, 10, 11, 12 years when Schwartz got hired uh, out in Detroit. But, you know, I I think when you look at the way that he wants to play, again, going back, everything starts with the front, right? So if you're going to play a one gap front and you're going to play mostly single high, you have to count, you know, how our offense is going to combat that. Okay, well, you know, I, I, I know from the, uh, you know, three years that he was here in Philly or the, the four or five years, rather, that he was here in Philly, you're going to see a lot of traps and whams and you know, quick hitting runs and some of the screen stuff. So your linebackers have to be able to deal with contact. If your edge rushers are going to be force players and D-gap players and C-gap players in the run game, well, you're going to need a linebacker that can contend with contact. You're going to, that's going to be an A-gap player or a B-gap player uh, on a lot of these different run fits. And so it doesn't, it's not necessarily that they need to be big. 
but they need to be really good through contact. And that's why I'm glad that you brought up David Long because David Long's a great example of that. He's not the biggest linebacker in the book. He was he was small by NFL standards coming out of Michigan a few years back. But then when you watch him, you're like, man, this guy is outstanding playing through contact. More often than not, he is just such a violent presence inside at the second level and, and just so ferocious with how he approaches the line of scrimmage. And so that's why, yeah, you're gonna you're looking for more guys like that. You think back to when he was in Detroit, and honestly, he had this guy in Tennessee as well. Stephen Tulloch was a tackle machine for them because he was so great through contact. And you can you can hide guys, um, you know, in terms of like pass coverage and things like that. It's, you're not always finding a true, uh, you know, three down guy that you know is like, oh, he's great against contact downhill and also a, a shutdown player. Uh, you know, in playing in reverse, that those those guys don't grow on trees. Um, as far as JOK is concerned, I think what what, what I would find to be interesting with that is that you know uh, Jim Schwartz was here in Philadelphia in the spring of 2020 um, when the Eagles drafted Davion Taylor coming out of Colorado and Davion wasn't the same level of prospect as JOK but a similar type of prospect in terms of he was undersized uh, was a kind of like a converted safety you know big nickel star player in that Colorado defense and you know they, they had a plan for him they said hey you know what? we really like this kid what he can bring um, and it didn't work out for Davion he didn't he didn't uh, reach that plateau but there was that mindset of hey you know what this guy with this skill set there's something that can be worked in here and that was unfortunately not able to uh, come to fruition either for the scheme or for uh for Davion but I think when you look at um you know that that mindset I think he he would have a plan for a player like that but again it's just the the evolution of the game has been such where it's not like uh you comparing Stephen Tulloch to to uh JOK is kind of a a futile exercise just because the game is so different um for when those two guys uh, were at their peak Sure. Good stuff. I, I would ask you the, the secondary stuff is interesting. I think, and again, I'm not diving into Jim Schwartz back in 2020. I don't really know the reason things ultimately unraveled. Um, and I don't know the fan complaint. I, it feels like some things I've read is that there was some stuff in the back half of that Philadelphia defense that maybe drove some people. And I have fans are all over the place with what they do and don't prefer. I get it. But it seems like he was a single high guy, a lot of man coverage, played a lot of single high. and um, Maybe that is shifting a little bit as I've seen some things with Shane Bowen in Tennessee and maybe how they're pairing his front usage to Shane's preference for too high, how they're dece- you know sort of deceiving going open to closed and things of that nature to give more of that open look and give more of that cover six, cover eight variational stuff and then ultimately move into uh, you know guys playing in and gapping out. I mean, Tennessee was so good against the run. You can't do that when you're being outgapped consistently. So they had ways. But what I'm asking you is, do you think Schwartz has has altered his coverage stuff from his in, and this is tough to answer. It's really me just asking you to provide some conjecture and projection here. Do you think he has altered his philosophy around coverage? Because is that coverage stuff what ultimately unravel things? Like what happened at the end of that tenure? And do you think like from that, the culture of his philosophies around coverage are adapting, moving, changing as he gets another crack at this thing? Yeah, and to your point, it's it's really tough to answer just because we don't know what the input was from him in, in, during his time in Tennessee, right? So over these last couple of years, what was the uh, the input from a coverage standpoint? Did it lean more on him from a front standpoint? Uh, that that's what it's tough. It's tough to answer that question. Um, you know, I, there were a lot of things that happened in terms of how things ended here uh, in 2020 in Philadelphia, um, and it was on both sides of the football, it was offensively and defensively. To your point, though, for the majority of his time, it was you know here in Philly. It was a single high defense with a delineated 
Free safety, strong safety. Roddy McLeod was the free safety playing from depth. He was a top-down player. Uh, and Malcolm Jenkins was the strong safety playing close to the box, um, you know, matching up with tight ends and backs and uh, doing a lot of the, the big nickel type of thing. So uh, I think when you look at um, the way the defense was set to evolve, you know, I know that there were, there were plans with like Jalen Mills in that final year of, oh, well, he's going to actually slide inside and do a little bit more from like a, a big nickel standpoint. And, and we'll lean more on some of the other corners on the on the perimeter. Um, but again, it was the, the, we didn't really get the, the time to be able to see that play out. Uh, I don't know how that would have evolved under Jim Schwartz. Would things have changed and would they lean more into some too high stuff and gone with what the majority of the NFL has done to get more into that side? Uh, my guess is, is that. Uh, and I, this without looking at the stats, but my guess is is that if you look at the the way the Eagles play defense in say 2017 from a single high versus two high uh, standpoint, that they would be like one of the leaders in the NFL in single high usage uh, this year if you took those numbers and put it uh, into the 2022 NFL season. So, uh, you know, would that be the case in 2023 in Cleveland? That, that's tough for me to say, um, but I would say that that was how they played here in Philadelphia over the majority of his tenure. I, I would ask this: you talk about Rodney McLeod, they're like. The Browns don't really have, I mean, they have, they have Grant Delpit, who I view as a similar player, obviously a lesser degree of what you mentioned with Malcolm Jenkins. He can play the box. He led the NFL safety stop tackles this year. I think he does a nice job as an extra body third pseudo linebacker at times when they go single high, they've been playing John Johnson back there. Not really what John Johnson was good at in LA and where he thrived doing a bunch of different Swiss army type roles for Brandon Staley's defense before he came to Cleveland. Like, I'm curious if you really think that this defense needs a center fielder type to have success, because if they're going to that, I do worry about the ability to be fluid in that back half and have a guy who can threaten and do the instinctual things from center field. Do you view that as a really, really critical position for his defense? If if they're going to live in single high, it is. If they are not going to live in single high, then you can get away with that. Um, and it's funny because, what, you know, with Delpit coming out of LSU, uh, the way I personally evaluated him was more of that single high post player, play from depth, see the ball, go get the ball. Um, you know, and I know he has uh, adjusted his game and he's played a little bit more close to the line of scrimmage, as you mentioned, the success he had in that scheme this year. Um, and you know what John Johnson has been? He's been more of that like Swiss Army life, uh, too high, can rotate down and make plays close to the line of scrimmage. That's where he made his bones uh, with the Rams. And so, um, you know, I think that, look, Jim Schwartz is is, is no dummy. Uh, he is a really smart coach. He's going to put his players in position to succeed. So he's not going to go square peg round hole, uh, you know, especially big picture, right? You, you might be forced into some things um, early on in year one, uh, depending on where, you know, how uh, how much stress there's going to be on that entire staff to win next year. But I think ultimately uh, he's going to put his guys in a position to succeed. He's not going to do anything that would make the defense worse. Uh, so I, I think um, if that's the way he kind of views that personnel, then he's all say, all right, well, we're going to lean into more of those split safety looks. If he thinks that he, if, if, you know, by his heart, by his mind, he wants to play single high and he thinks he's got the guys to do it, then that's the way he'll play. But it's just tough to know the answer to that question on the outside. Yeah. There's a big decision to be made there with John. I certainly like you just mentioned kind of, I know you're not diving deep into Cleveland film, but I actually thought Grant coming out of LSU had a better propensity to be doing those sorts of things. Now, those two have only been exposed to Joe Woods in their time in Cleveland. So maybe, right. you know, Schwartz comes in, looks at it and says, let's just flip this and run it and see if this can be good for us. So, and they also could have the ability to slingshot those guys, walk them down, rotate them. And if both of them have a propensity to handle some of the down in the box stuff, maybe there can be some flexibility there, but they have a decision to make on John's contract that will certainly be of interest. Listen, last question for him before we let you go. Fantastic stuff, man. So good. Um, 
just your your outside view of Cleveland, what they've had. I know you have not we haven't played in the regular season, but you were exposed to it in the pre and you obviously spent a little bit of time thinking about it. Do you think Schwartz is a good fit here? Do you think what that like Jim Schwartz getting another opportunity? First, do you think it's warranted? And B, do you do you have confidence he can make it work in Cleveland? And you're not going to offend us if you say no. I think yeah. it's always good to root in realism on these pods. Yeah, I think that um, it, it is a good fit. I mean, first of all, his press conferences are going to be awesome. He's I always like uh, Jim Schwartz's honesty with media availabilities. Um, and if you ask good questions, you're going to get really good answers. Um, you're going to get ready for some analogies. Uh, he's a big baseball guy. Uh, so you'll get some, uh, you'll, you'll get some guardians things in there. Uh, you'll get, I know, I'm sure, uh, if he hasn't, uh, if he doesn't do it in his opening presser, you can be sure that some of the off season will be talking about the, uh, the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, you know, so I'm sure he'll get into some of that as well. But I think, well, look, when you look at this personnel, um, I'm sure he's excited about working with guys like miles Garrett, right. And you add in uh, a JOK and what he can do. Look, honestly, Anthony Walker, uh, I'm not sure on contract status with a lot of these guys, but Anthony Walker is the kind of linebacker I think that would play pretty well uh, in that kind of system. I think he's similar to, um, you know, guys like TJ Edwards, who, you know, he was here when they brought TJ Edwards in uh, as an undrafted free agent at Wisconsin. He's that kind of player. And again, there's kind of looking up and down the depth chart. You look at the talent that that is there in the secondary. um, Yeah, I think that there's plenty of guys there that he's got, I'm sure that he's excited about. Uh, And again, this is a, a coach that, will always try and put his guys in a position to succeed. And I think if you look at, you know, if you try and put coaches into buckets and this is like very, uh, you know, I, I don't like, um, you know, just like putting rubber stamps on people and saying, oh, this is the bucket that they belong in. But he's the kind of coach that is going to raise the floor of your defense. Right. I, I think when you when you see a Jim Schwartz defense, you kind of know what you're going to get. And he is going to he's going to raise the floor uh, of that group and especially up front, put them in position to put up a lot of numbers getting after the quarterback. Yeah, that raise the floor stuff is exactly what I think I've been trying to preach to people, how you can seamlessly come in with the guys who have done similar things and step into that and elevate the stuff they've already done without a wholesale rethinking of how they play defense. So listen, Fran, this was as good as it gets, man. We appreciate your time and, and your thoughts and uh, expertise on all this stuff, man, so much. And uh, listen, best of, best of luck to your Eagles the rest of the way. I uh, appreciate it, Jake. Uh, looking forward to running into you uh, at some point here in the new future. Fran is great, man. Really a guy that I tried to model a lot of what I'm doing in film room and podcasting after. So anytime I can take some of his time, I always greatly appreciate that. And he is well worth a follow for those of you who care about football nuance and the draft and just good general football banter. Make sure you you go ahead and do that. There's only one question I really wanted to ask him, which ties into what I wrote, is about assisting coaches and guys that he thinks Schwartz would go after because I was putting that list together and I don't know why I blanked on that question but nonetheless it's going to be one of the more fascinating storylines over the next I would say month um, who they end up letting go from the current staff and who they end up bringing on again if you're interested in those types of names uh, who those people could be I put together the list as best I can of his connections uh, Schwartz connections to guys he's coached with in Philly Buffalo Detroit and his first run uh, as Tennessee coordinator uh, back 01 to 09 uh, put put together a list as like I said as best I could it could be like he said it'll be a lot of guys he's never coached with and he has to coach him up on what he wants them to do and how he wants them to approach it we'll see that's probably the next domino to start following um, and we'll you know be tied closely into that a reminder before we go uh, today that there are hats and t-shirts available uh, pinned post on my podcast 
Twitter page and my main Twitter page that you can go in and purchase some pretty slick OBR hats and a uh, variety of different T-shirts. So a variety, I mean a couple different colors. If the demand gets high, we'll offer some more. But a lot of you have been loyal listeners, and I've wanted to put together a cool OBR film breakdown, Browns film breakdown, hat collection, a couple different options. So check that out if you have not. Otherwise, great stuff going on at the OBR. Continuing to put up a daily mock. I'll be doing that until the draft. Tomorrow will be the fourth edition of it. Then we'll do over the weekend our four Saturday mocks as we started last year. I think those are fun too. So if you're interested in college prospects as we move in full on into this offseason phase, that's where you can get a daily dose, usually about 9 or 10 a.m. every day. Check the OBR for that. And again, reminder, plenty of stuff up from everybody on Jim Schwartz's press conference and all of our angles around the hiring. So check that out. Thanks for stopping by today, guys. Always appreciate your support and uh, taking the time out of your day to listen to this show. I'll be back tomorrow with some more exciting content, probably get into running back review and do a little uh, conversation about what they're doing with the future of running back because that is a position that is going to change in some form or fashion. Check in for your Friday podcast. Look forward to seeing you guys at that point. Have a great day. Go Browns. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.